The Old Testament lesson for the fourth Sunday of Easter is from Lamentations, chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. The festival goes on. We don't stop celebrating Christmas or celebrating Easter for many days yet. Many days yet. We have a few more Sundays of Easter. The festival goes on, and of course, the resurrection bears fruit in our lives day in and day out. Morning after morning, the resurrection bears fruit. Just as we heard from Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Listen to what marvelous, marvelous and absolute terms are used to describe God's love. It never ceases. It never comes to an end. It is new every morning. Not a day passes by, not a moment, not a breath, where God is not blessing you with his mercy and his love. That is the story of the Bible from beginning to end. It is the story of God's love and mercy, never-ending, overflowing, beyond measure, and unchanging. That is the reason why Christians should study the Bible in earnest. Because in the Bible we see the height and depth and length and breadth of God's love portrayed to us, especially in that he sent his Son to die for us. We learn about God's love and we see its pattern. We see how God has loved his people throughout the generations. How he loves them by giving them promises and then keeping his promises. How his love is received by faith. By trusting the promises that he has given. By believing that he will deliver. Just as he said, believing indeed every morning. Like the manna that God sent from heaven for his people Israel every morning, there it lay on the ground. Or like the daily sacrifices that he established in the tabernacle and in the temple, there the fire was to be kept burning day after day after day. Just as this eternal candle burns here in the sanctuary, unless I forget to fill it with oil and then it goes out, but most of the time it's supposed to be burning. A daily reminder, day after day after day of God's steadfast love. Week after week, we worship, receiving again the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation, receiving again the Holy Spirit that was poured out on you in baptism, receiving again the abundance of heaven. Week after week, 
there is something even better. Something better than an eternal candle, better than sacrifices in a temple, better than manna on the ground, and that is something which does not grow old, is not subject to delay or can be put aside for bad weather or for concern about safety. It is something eternal, and that is God's love and mercy, always there, always there for you, always being poured out for you. Great is your faithfulness. It's an understatement beyond measure. Great. How does that word possibly capture God's faithfulness? But there comes a question, and that is, how has God loved you? It's easy to hear talk about God's love and his mercy and his blessings and his grace, and for it to enter into some sort of a vague, abstract place in our minds where we lose sight of what exactly that means. How has God loved you? How has he shown you mercy? You can see it in the next verse from our Old Testament lesson. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Portions, portions come up often when you have, say, for instance, siblings who are concerned about getting their fair share. I want to have my portion, my part of the cookie of the pie. What is your portion? Who gets the bigger portion? The people of Israel were to collect their daily portion of manna, just what they needed for that day, for their household. What does this passage say about your portion? Is it just enough for a day? Is it just part of the cookie? a slice of the pie. The Lord is your portion. The Lord himself. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who spoke you into existence, he himself is your portion. He is your inheritance. He gives himself to you. Quite unlike the prodigal son who thought that the best thing he could have was part of his father's property, and so he asked for his portion of the inheritance before its time, forgetting, not realizing, not recognizing that he already possessed something far better, his father himself. In being the son of his father, he had everything. Even as the father says to the older son later, all that I have is yours. That younger son sought something far less, and that is often a trap that we fall into, a temptation we fall into, seeking too small a portion, just this or that portion of God's blessings, just this or that part of what God gives to the world, just this or that thing that we want, neglecting the fact that God gives himself to us. Yes, even just a small portion, just a small bit, would be enough, just as that Canaanite woman recognized when Jesus called her a dog, and she said, look, If even a crumb fell off of your table, that would be enough for me. Just a corner, just a bit would be enough. And yet God doesn't stop with just a bit. He gives his whole self to you. He says to the people of Israel, just as he says to you, I am your God and you are my people. Those are words of possession. He possesses you and you possess him by faith. He is not far off and distant. He is not away from you. He has given his name to you so that whenever you speak his name, whenever you call on him, there he is. Just as if you're a mother or father and you hear some kid yell, Mom, your head instantly turns, so it is with your heavenly father who gives you his name so that whenever you call on him, he is there for you. Unbelievable that the God who created the heavens and the earth would be so mindful of you and me to give his name into our possession, to give himself to us, 
to join himself to us, as he does in the waters of baptism, joining himself to us by faith, so that whatever Jesus receives from his heavenly Father, so also do we, not least of all, resurrection and eternal life. He gives himself to you, not least of all, in his body and blood. What greater expression of the fact that the Lord is your portion could there be in the fact that he gives himself, his flesh and blood, to you to eat and drink? Not just a portion, not just a small fragment. It's often misunderstood what we're receiving in the Lord's Supper. Not just a bit of Jesus' body as though we get a hair or a shred of skin. But you receive in that bread and in that wine the entirety of Jesus. Nothing is withheld from you. Nothing at all. You have all of him. How has he loved you? How has he given you himself as your portion? In an unbelievable and marvelous way. Just what you have received by faith. The disciples in the upper room just after the resurrection were terrified that what had happened to Jesus would also happen to them, that they would be persecuted by the Jews, that they would be crucified at worst. They were terrified that what happened to Jesus would happen to them, and there is a great irony in that, for, of course, it is the case that what happens to Jesus happens to them, and that is the best news of all. For Christ did not remain in the tomb. The grave could not hold him. And so also it goes for you, by faith, the Lord is your portion. Therefore, hope in him. What goes for him goes for you. Christ has been risen from the dead, and so also will you. That day is not yet here, though. That day of resurrection that we sing in anticipation. It's not here yet, and so there is something for you to do. In the meantime, those are the next verses from Lamentations. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is, as Peter said, you are sojourners and exiles. You're far from home. You're on a journey, returning home. And you should, probably, as kids often do, ask all the time, are we there yet? That's what we're asking when we say, thy kingdom come. Come, Lord, quickly. Are we there yet? We're on a journey. We're on our way home. And we are to wait, hoping in the Lord. Not waiting and hoping as somebody who is just desperate, like a gambler who's just hoping that the next time they pull that lever, it will be a jackpot. Or like an investor who puts his money in the stock market, just hoping that he'll capture an upturn when everything goes up. But instead, hoping and waiting like this, like a watchman who stands on the walls looking for the first rays of sunlight, the first rays of the morning, knowing and believing full well that they will appear. This is not a faint hope and a dream. The sun will rise, and when the sun rises on you, it will be the light of Jesus Christ himself. Wait and hope. Wait like a mother waiting for the birth of her child. Yes, it is often, not often, all the time, (laughs) anguish, lots of pain and suffering. But even as Peter said, or as Jesus said, that pain and suffering goes away because of the joy that is brought to that mother at the sight of her child. Wait in eagerness and expectation as a mother waits for her baby. Quiet waiting is the posture of faith. 
We have no cause to be anxious or frenzied. No cause to be concerned about anything, but we can wait quietly. That is hard to do, and I want you to picture a great story that illuminates this. The people of Israel, I've told you this story before, and it's uh, one of my favorites from the Bible. The people of Israel were fleeing from Pharaoh and all his army. There they stood, having left Egypt, and they stood at the banks of the Red Sea. And all they could see behind them was the soldiers coming after them, and the horses and the chariots, and a return to slavery. That's all they could see behind them. And in front of them, all they could see was the Red Sea, through which they could not pass. They had no way to go through, and they were terrified. They were terrified. It is easy to be terrified in life on account of those very same things, terrors behind and danger ahead. But Moses speaks to the people because God had given them promises. He had promised to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. He had given them promises. And so Moses speaks to the people and he says, look, all that you have to do is be quiet. Just be quiet and wait. God will deliver you. He always has. He always will. Great is his faithfulness. Wait for the Lord. And know that while you are waiting, the difficulty that you encounter, the trouble that you endure, the grief that you face in this life is good. It is good for you because it is a blessed thing when you endure it patiently. This is what it says in Lamentations, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Why? For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. The grief and sorrow that you as Christians endure in this life is not the grief and sorrow that everyone thinks about. The loss of material things, dashed hopes and dreams, the grief that you experience in this life is chiefly the grief of suffering from the fact that righteousness does not yet abound, that the kingdom of God is not yet fully here, that we are yet waiting, that you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that you are waiting to be filled with every good thing. Waiting it means that you must endure unrighteousness. Unrighteousness around you, wickedness in the world, and also the unrighteousness that remains in your flesh. You must endure. But as St. Peter says, when you endure, it is a blessed thing in the sight of God. Because, as Jesus said, Although you lament and sorrow, although you weep and mourn and the world rejoices, they laugh at you when you suffer for righteousness' sake. Although that is the case, your sorrow will be turned to joy. Just a little while, Jesus said to his disciples. Just a little while. He was, of course, talking about his crucifixion. A little while and you won't see me. And yet a little while and you will see me again. And they couldn't make any sense of it. They couldn't figure it, heads or tails, although he had told them time and again that he must die and rise from the dead. Just a little while. That is the pattern for your life as well. It's just a little while. The Lord will not cast off forever. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance 
of his steadfast love, that never-ending, unchanging, eternal love that is new every morning. Put your hope in him and rejoice, for Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.